That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. Welcome to part two of our history episode. How are we, how are we doing? I had a great time talking about Steve Carlton, and I'm excited to talk about the 1997 Cleveland Indians. Yeah, the one of the one of the staples of the 90s was the Cleveland Indians and one of the better teams or maybe the best team of this kind of dynasty that never was, was the 97 Indians. And, you know, they definitely suffered the the most heartbreak for sure, which we'll get into later. We will. But this was a weird, this was a weird season for Cleveland and how it started. So in 1996, they went 99 and 62, obviously really good, but they lost in the division series three to one to the Baltimore Orioles. And it, this was a huge, huge transition year because Albert Bell left for the White Sox in free agency. Uh, I actually did not know this going into this. I, I just assumed he was on the team. He was not. He left for the White Sox. He left in the division for free agency. Uh, Eddie Murray was also on the 96 Indians. It was kind of the later portion of his career, but he left for Anaheim. And the Indians traded Jeff Kent to the Giants and got Matt Williams in return to be the third baseman. They signed Tony Fernandez in free agency. So already, this is a pretty new look team. But then, on March 25th, just days before the start of the season, absolute bombshell from John Hart, the Indians' general manager. With a week before the season, the Indians traded reliever Alan Embry and franchise center fielder Kenny Lofton to the Atlanta Braves for Marquise Grissom and David Justice which was a crazy move. Uh, they decided that they weren't going to be able to afford Lofton, who was in a contract year. So they decided to get two other outfielders for him. So this was a completely new look team that was going to try to, to, to defend their title in the American League Central in 1997. Yeah. So they had quite a, you can call it an offensive April. You can call it an offensive April. Uh, whichever way you want to call it, it works. During the month, David Justice and Sandy Alomar were two of the best hitters. I'm sorry, they were the two best hitters in the American League. Justice put up a weighted runs created plus of 218, and Alomar put up a 211 weighted runs created plus. And they were the first pair of American League teammates since Fangraphs began collecting splits data in 1974 to to reach 200 weighted runs created plus through the first month of the season. That's right. I mean, they were on a torrid pace through the month of April. And Jim Tomey wasn't far behind them. He slashed 338, 505, 600 for an 1105 OPS during the month, a 468 Woba, 184 weighted runs created plus. And Tomey had an AL leading 25.7% walk rate. He was walking once every game just about. And the Indians had by far the best offense in baseball during this month. An 8.8 F4 from hitters was a full win better than the next team in the majors, which was 7.4. They had 49 home runs as a team. The next best in the majors was 38. They led the majors in OBP with a 399, a slugging with a 543, and therefore had a 
42 team OPS through the first month of the season. They also led in Wobo with a 405 weighted runs created plus with a 143. The next best was 122. So far and away, there was no better hitting team in all of baseball through the month of April. So as you can imagine, uh, the Indians were absolutely rolling on all cylinders and were by far leading the American League Central. But no, they were 12 and 13 through the month of April with this offense. And as you can imagine, the pitching was an absolute disaster and a half. The Indians were the only team in the majors to post a negative pitcher F war in the month of April. It was a negative 0.7. They had the worst FIP in the majors with a 561. And they also had the worst home runs per nine and the worst BABIP. That was a 162, 1.62 and a 0.342 for home runs per nine and BABIP. The rotation had a seven ERA a seven ERA and they had the, and the rotation also had the worst FIP in the majors with a 541. The bullpen had a negative 1.1 F4, which was the worst in the majors. And just to name some individuals, Oral Hershiser was two and O with a 606 ERA. Two and O. He didn't lose a single game. He won two games with a 606 ERA. How about this one? Charles Nagy, four and one, really good record, a 499 ERA. And then Chad Oega, two and two with a 6.98 ERA. And at least 10 runs were scored between the two teams in 21 of the Indians' 25 games in the month of April. That is 84% of games with at least 10 runs scored. Yeah, it was a, a very surprising uh, way to start a season, to say the least. And that leads them into the month of May where they starting to turn it around a little bit, uh, especially the rotation. And the Indians had the second lowest ERA, second lowest rotation ERA in the, the American League in the month of May. David Justice through the end of May, uh, total from April and May, he was slashing 383, 483, 754 for a 1238 OPS along with 16 home runs and 44 RBI, all over the span of two months. The Indians were 27 and 24 after May 31st, and you know that was good enough to give them first place in the American League Central by one and a half games. And on May 9th, uh, Charles Nagy, a guy who had previously been struggling, uh, kind of capped the month. But he was 2-0, so he wasn't struggling. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Uh, Charles Nagy was able to pick up even even more than what he was doing uh, in the month of April. He got him, and the Indians uh, win the opening game. So for Nagy, for Charles Nagy, uh, that was a very good game on that night. He threw nine innings, allowed seven hits, no runs, two walks and 11 strikeouts for a game score of 82. And in the month of June, it was more offense. This time it was a lot from their great catcher, Sandy Alomar. And June was the month of catcher Sandy Alomar. He started a hit streak on, uh, on Daniel's third or negative third birthday, 
um, May 25th, three years, exactly three years before he was born. And he kept it going through the entire month of June. And during the month of June, he, sl he slugged, uh, he slashed 420, 473, 617 for a 1064 OPS with 34 hits in 20 games. He was hitting 420 during the month of June. And ironically, uh, Jim Tomey was the Ted Williams to his Joe DiMaggio. Uh, Jim Tomey was slashing 289, 404, 783 for an 1187 OPS. You know, better, better slugging and better OPS than uh, Sandy Alomar. And Tomey also had a 482 WOBA and a 193 weighted runs created plus in the month of June. Do you want to explain the uh, the metaphor of Williams and DiMaggio? Yeah, so I mean, I it's not the exact same comparison, but you know, we covered this in the in part one of episode thirty eight for the Ted Williams episode, uh, ironically enough. But you know, Joe DiMaggio is known for his fifty six game hit streak, um, you know, which is legendary in its own right. But Ted Williams uh, had a better you know, Ted Williams not only had a better OPS, but he also had a better average during Joe DiMaggio's streak. And it's not like Ted Williams played like the same amount of games. He just had a better average OBP slugging and OPS than Joe DiMaggio during Joe DiMaggio's streak. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big ups for uh, Ted Williams. So the, the metaphor there is Jim Tomey was actually better than Sandy Alomar, even though Sandy Alomar is getting recognition for hitting 420 in uh, in the month of June, and also you know starting a big hitting streak. So that's the uh, that's the metaphor there. So then on July 6th, uh, Sandy Alomar uh, entered entered the game, entered this July 6th game with his hit streak sitting at. 29 games um so here is here's what sandy almar is able to do with this hit streak at 29. martinez is in the hunt again this year that's no surprise this could be trouble cooper can't get him and it's a 30 game hitting streak for sandy almar well, about the last way you'd expect him to tack onto the hitting streak So a 30-game hit streak there from Sandy Alomar. A whole entire month, he was able to hit safely, uh, at least in terms of games. And Alomar's 30-game hit streak remains the longest in Cleveland Indians history since 1915. So the, the one caveat there is that uh, Nap Lajoie had a, long, a lot of longer one uh, when they were the Cleveland Naps, but... Ever since they did the name change to the Indians, uh, Sandy Alomar is a leader to this day. Yeah, and, you know, also if it changes, it will remain that forever. That's true because, I mean, it probably has to at this point because, like, the Indians already said that they're going to consider it. I feel like you can't consider it and then just be like, no, we're good, actually. We're going to keep it. We, we, we met up with some people, and we're actually going to decide to keep it. We're actually, we actually like it. Yeah, actually, we're going to bring back Chief Wahoo, too. Why not? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So now we head into the all-star game and the Indians finished the first half 44 and 36, three and a half games up in the American league central. 
The Indians had four hitters at the break with at least 150 weighted runs created plus. Tomey had 71, Justice had 170, Alomar had 163, and Manny Ramirez had 156. No other team had more than two of such players. The Indians had four. And this Midsummer Classic was extra special because it was hosted by the Indians. Sandy Alomar, David Justice, and Jim Tomey were all represented by the Indians in the game. Jim Tomey actually actually participated in the home run derby. Uh, we're not going to talk about his performance, though. It was, uh, let's just say, um, if you want to Google uh, Robinson Cano's, uh, I think it was his 2012 performance. Yep. Uh, yeah, it was one of those. Yeah. That's the league's 2014. Yeah. Yep. Um, anyway, before the All-Star game, the Indians played tribute to franchise legend Larry Doby. And Larry Doby was the first African-American to play in the American League. And Doby's accomplishment was almost 50 years to the exact day of the All-Star game. He made his major league debut on July 5th, 1947. And the All-Star game was held on July 8th, 1997. And I wanted to just take a brief moment here to recognize Larry Doby because his accomplishments get virtually zero recognition. Uh, and he was, he was kind of dealing with the same stuff that Jackie Robinson did. I mean, he literally debuted two and a half, three months later, uh, was playing in, I mean, similar environments when he went on the road. So, um, yeah, I really, I really wanted to point that out. Uh, and that's not to take away from anything Jackie Robinson did, of course, but I think Larry Doby uh, deserves his due being the first AL player to break that color barrier. Yeah, and like Larry Doby, Jackie Robinson wasn't going to the same cities as Larry Doby was, so Mm -hmm. he was, you know, it was new to to everyone, um, for better or for worse. Yeah. So, on to the actual game. Uh, In the bottom of the seventh inning, Sandy Alomar came up in a 1-1 ball game with a man on, trying to play the hero in his home park. center field hometown hero goodbye So with that home run, the American League went up 3-1 to one in the game. They would win by that score. And Alomar became the first player in Major League history to win All-Star Game MVP in his own ballpark. Yeah. Sandy Alomar making history with that on, you know, on the heels of a 30-game hit streak, nonetheless, doing some amazing things mm-hmm. uh, for the Indians. And the Indians were kind of inconsistent after this all-star break, uh, after they were well-represented in that all-star game. Uh, the Indians won six of their first eight games in the second half and actually uh, bolstered their division lead to five and a half games. So I guess out of the gate in the second half, they're doing pretty well. Won six of their first eight games, uh, increased their division lead by two games. But after that, after that, they struggled from July 18th through the end of the month. They went four and 10 and the second place Milwaukee Brewers, that's right. Milwaukee Brewers 
were just two and a half games back of the Indians. So then after July, it was go time. Late into the month of August, the Indians were going wire to wire for the division, but the Indians had a trick up their sleeve. On August 30th, the team acquired second baseman Bip Roberts in a trade. Excuse me there. On August 27th, Jim Tomey was celebrating his 27th birthday. Uh, Jim was known throughout the clubhouse for the way he wears his high socks while he plays. Because of this, the entire Indians lineup for that night decided to pay tribute to Jim, who had an off day facing a lefty by wearing high socks for the night. And the Indians went on to win 10-4 against the Anaheim Angels that night. And the Indians opted to keep the sock strategy going forward, and they went 19-14 and 14 from that day on. That 19-14 record, by the way, tied for the best record in the American League. So you can't say that it did not work. And on September 23rd, the Indians were on the verge of clinching the division and were trailing the Yankees 9-8 in the bottom of the ninth. David Justice hit a clutch two-out single to tie the game. And next up was the guy that we've been talking about a lot, a guy who came up clutch in the All-Star game, Sandy Alomar. The Tribe are once again American League Central champions, and they ended up finishing the season 86-75. and 75. Yeah, so now the Indians, we're going to meet uh, the members of the Tribe, as I call them. David Justice uh, made, made them forget about Kenny Lofton real quick this year. I mean, people forget. He came over in that trade uh, for, for the franchise player, and all he did that season – was hit 329, 418, 596 for a 1013 OPS, 118 OPS plus, 33 home runs, 101 RBIs, and he ended up finishing fifth in the MVP voting. Also, Jim Tomey, 286, 423, 579, 1001, 156 OPS, 40 home runs, 102 RBIs. He finished sixth in the MVP voting. And then, of course, the catcher, Sandy Alomar, we mentioned him a lot in the regular season, a 324 average, slashing 354, 4, 545, and a 900 OPS, 128 OPS plus, 14th in the MVP voting. Also, Manny Ramirez, a 328, 415, 538, 953 slash line, 26 home runs, and 88 RBIs. Uh, in the bullpen, the closer, Jose Mesa, had a 240 ERA and 16 saves. Uh, also in the bullpen, people forget that uh, years after recording, you know, songs like Smooth Criminal, like Thriller, like Beat It, Michael Jackson actually did join the Indians' bullpen 
And he did pretty well in 1997 with a 324 ERA with 15 saves. Uh, so not bad from the king of pop there. And also Paul Ossenmacher uh, had a 294 ERA and he didn't allow an earned run between June 18th and August 29th with 22 and a th- 23 and two thirds innings pitched during that time. Also 21 year old rookie Jarrett Wright went eight and three with a 438 ERA and finished fifth in the rookie of the year voting. Mike Hargrove, the manager, finished sixth in the manager of the year voting. And every Indians home game was sold out for the second straight season. How about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, that they were, uh, they were the, you know, American league team, most consistent American league team of the nineties. And they, they drew crowds when they were successful and it looked like the, the ownership kind of cared about the team. Mm -hmm. So now they're in the American league division series against the New York Yankees. They are going into the Bronx, which is not, that's the defending world series champions. And it's never a fun crowd to go into, but that's what the Indians got to do. And in game one, the Indians put up a five spot in the first inning, which was capitalized by a three-run home run by Sandy Alomar. Later in the fourth, with a 5-1 score, Bip Roberts delivered an RBI single to put another run on the board for Cleveland. And later on, it was 6-3 Indians in the bottom of the sixth, and Eric Plunk was out for his second inning of work and relief. After a two-out RBI, sing- after giving up a two-out RBI single to Ray Sanchez, he promptly allowed for Tim Raines, Derek Jeter, and Paul O'Neill to hit back-to-back-to-back home runs. That made it an 8-6 Yankees ball game, and the Yankees actually ended up winning by that score. So that's a really, really tough uh, first game to swallow, especially in a best-of-five series. Like the Indians, they have, to, they have to find a way to come back from that because the Yankees have all the momentum. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So now we're in game two. The Indians were once again in trouble after Jarrett Wright allowed three runs in the first inning. The score would stay three to nothing until the top of the fourth with two outs in the inning. David Justice hit an RBI single. That was followed by a Sandy Alomar RBI single. And that would be followed by a Jim Tomei RBI single. And that would be followed by a Tony Fernandez two run double. So that is five two out runs scored in the inning. And then in the next inning, Matt Williams looked to put a lock on that game. Curveball here. Pete Williams gets into it. Left center field. At the track. At the wall. Gone. A two-run home run. And a 7-3 Cleveland lead. That ball just sitting about thigh high to Matt Williams. He did not get it down, but Williams got it up. So that just about did it for that game. The Indians won 7-3, and they did not allow a run after the first inning. So that was big. And now it's a 1-1 game going into Cleveland. A 1-1 series going into Cleveland. And then in game three, uh, David Wells of the Yankees had a very, very 90s-esque pitching line. Nine innings pitched, five hits, one run, zero walks, and one strikeout. Uh, the one Indians run came on a ground out, and they, they gave up six. So the Yankees won the game six to one. 
They were now up two to one in the series. So now in game four, the Indians have their backs to the wall. And the Yankees got two early runs on RBIs from O'Neill and Cecil Fielder. After that, Charlie Hayes would add on, would try to add on. Little floater to left. They'll bring home Martinez, the throw from Giles. In time and out at the plate to end the top of the first inning. Brian Giles guns down Tino Martinez. So an absolutely amazing play, both on the throw by Brian Giles and the tag by Sandy Alomar there to gun the runner down at the plate and prevent it from being 3 nothing. Yeah, uh, big, yeah, very, very big defensive play. Shows you, you know, all the outs, all the outs matter, mm-hmm. especially in this, in, in an atmosphere like this. So now in the second inning, David Justice led off for the Indians looking to get the Tribe on the board. Now the 2-2. Smoked into right. It's a one-run game. So that would make it a two to one game and it would stay that way for quite a while as Oral Hershiser was dealing for the Indians and Dwight Gooden was dealing for the Yankees. So now bottom of the eighth, the Indians are just two innings away from elimination and it's a two, one game. Sandy Alomar came up against Mariano Rivera with two outs down to their last four for their season. So the game is tied and the Indians have have life. So now in the ninth, Marquise Grissom leads off with a single and Bip Roberts bunts him to second. So now the winning run is on first with one out and little Omar Vizquel tried to be the hero for the Indians. So the Indians, with a little bit of luck there, uh, prevail in the game. And now it is a 2-2 series going into game five. And it's keep in mind, game five will still be in Cleveland because remember, the way the format used to be, uh, the home team got the last three games of the series. 
So yeah. now in game five, 21-year-old Jarrett Wright was going for the series win against those big, bad Yankees. And it was a 0-0 game in the third. And the Indians' offense looked to get looked to tack on. Omar Vizquel following him in the lineup. It really gives Mike Hargrove a lot of options if Marquise Grissom can reach base. Like that. Second hit for the Indians. It belongs to Grissom. Roberts set up at 0-2. Into center field for a hit. Grissom slips at second, but able to get back two on one out. To the right side, Martinez to second out, no other play, nobody at first, and it's first and third, two out. First and third, two out. And there's Vizcal, and they will just let him walk down to second base. Bob, that was a... He didn't do exactly what you said, but that's exactly what they were thinking. They actually wanted the throw from Pettit to first base. Now second and third, two out. And the center. Williams back over his head. And the Indians take a 2 nothing lead. So now it is a 3-0 Indians lead in Game 5. And through the first eight innings of the game, the Yankees were just 2-for-11 with runners in scoring position uh, after they got the Indians got out of jams in the 7th and 8th. And then in the ninth, Paul O'Neill hit a two-out double, and Jose Mesa had an opportunity to turn that two-for-11 into a two-for-12 to finish off the series. Into left center field. Giles is there. Celebrate. Cleveland Indians have defeated the Yankees and they're going to the American League Championship Series where they will fight to get their revenge on the Baltimore Orioles for the previous season. In the series against the Yankees, Sandy Alomar slashed 316, 316, 684 for 1,000 OPS. Omar Vizquel in the series went 9 for 18. That is a 500 batting average. Also, all hits were singles. David Justice in the series had two doubles and a home run. Also, Michael Jackson and Chad Oega combined for one earned run over nine and two-thirds innings pitched 
and the Indians were off to fight for the AL pennant. So now we are on to the American League Championship Series, where they are rematching against the Orioles. Last time it was the ALDS, this time it's the ALCS. So game one, the Indians offense, the high-flying offense, could not figure out Scott Erickson as he went eight innings of shutout baseball, and the Indians could only manage one at bat with runners in scoring position, and the Orioles won three to nothing. And in game two, after Omar Vizquel was hit by a pitch in the first inning, uh, Manny Ramirez looked to get things going early. Three balls and a strike on Manny Ramirez. Into center field, well hit. Brady Anderson at the track at the wall. He won't get this one. Manny Ramirez, a two-run first inning home run. And the Indians jump out in front here in game two. Ramirez hit the ball to right center field last night in the first inning that Brady Anderson climbed the wall, made the great catch, saving a home run, but not even Brady Anderson can climb up that high. So Manny Ramirez gives the Indians the 2-0 lead in game two of this championship series. So in the third inning, Cal Ripken Jr. tied it with a two-run bomb of his own, making it 2-2, and the score would stay that way until the bottom of the sixth when Mike Bordick hit a two-run single to make it 4-2 to two Orioles. And in the top of the eighth, after two strikeouts and two walks, Marquise Grissom, the newly acquired, you know, sort of new, first-year Indian, Marquise Grissom was trying to get the Indians the big hit when they needed it. So here's Marquise Grissom with two men on and two men out. They're not worried about Alomar. They're worried about Tomey scoring. He represents a tying run. Into left center field. Deep left center field. Track. Wall. Gone. A three-run home run for Marquise Grissom. And a 5-4 Indian lead in the eighth. Two walks in the inning, and bang from Grissom. So Mark Marquise Grissom with the crowd silencer, giving the Indians the 5-4 to four lead, and the Indians ended up winning by that score, 5-4 to four with a big win, tying the series 1-1. One to one. And then on to game three, Game three was a complete and total pitcher's duel. Uh, it was zero to zero heading into the seventh inning. Uh, and it was all about who was going to blink first between Oral Hershiser and Mike Messina. So we are going to see who would eventually blink first. To the shortstop. Pass Borda in the center. Here comes Tommy, and the Indians take a seventh inning lead.
So Mike Messina of the Orioles ended up being the first guy to blink first. And uh, this one nothing lead, the ability to keep it a scoreless game uh, from the Indians' end to keep the Orioles scoreless was all thanks to Oral Hershiser. So we're going to take a look at his performance. 14 and 6 on the year, four and a half ERA. And in postseason play, he is eight and one. He had two no decisions in the division series against the Yankees. Two strikes on Rafael leading off, one away. That's three in a row. Got the side. Could get the strike him out, throw him out, double play if he gets another here. Strike him out, throw him out. And the inning ending double play to end the top of the third. Kershizer, six strikeouts. And the double play ball to second. Robert starts it. There's Cal in the middle. Two up. Skied into right field. Manny Ramirez frozen for a moment. Tries to find it. Does. Inning over. Another double play chance. Six, four, three. That should end the top of the fifth inning. Grissom has the long run. Inning over. Not moving, and the ground ball to third. So now they don't start the runner, and it's a 5-4-3 double play. Throw the pitch when you're ready. Now the ground ball to Williams at third. Again, the Orioles put their leadoff man on, only to watch a double play ball follow. He'll go on this 3-2 to Palmero. And in the ninth, Jose Mesa, however, would blow the save by giving up a double to Brady Anderson. Uh, nothing else would come of it, and it would stay a one-to-one -one ball game. And this game would go deep into the 12th inning thanks to shutout work from Jeff Juden and Eric Plunk of the Indians. And in the bottom of the 12th, uh, Marquise Grissom uh, walked to, uh, to get on base. He then moved to third on a Tony Fernandez single. And then Omar Vizquel came up to the plate with another opportunity to play the hero. Put the squeeze on. Now would be a good time to do it. They've shown they're not going to pitch out. You've had a long delay. Speed on at third. Here comes Grissom. Safe at the plate, Indians win, Vizquel missed it. Davey Johnson arguing that the ball was fouled off by Vizquel. Davey saying you've got to get some help that it was a foul ball. It looked like it was a foul ball to me. 
home plate umpire John Hirschbeck saying that Grissom is safe at home. This looked like a foul ball. Here comes Grissom. Squeeze was on. Did he foul it? Webster dropped it. Grissom touches home. The game's over. A 12. So the Indians win the ball game on that failed suicide squeeze attempt, giving them the 2-1 series lead. How about that? Don't really see a lot of games. The image of Grissom just trotting home after that mistake. It's like it go it, it goes perfectly with Randy Rosarena's dive into home in game four of the World Series this year. Like the, the mistake by the catcher just leads to the confusing confusing winning run. It's perfect. Yeah, very reminiscent. No one really knows what's going on in either play. Yeah. So then we move on to game four. And the Orioles struck first on a double by BJ Surhoff. And in the bottom of the second, uh, Sandy Alomar was looking to retaliate with some Indians runs of their own. Alomar into deep center field. Anderson back. 2-1 So Sandy Alomar gives the Indians the lead to make it two to one Cleveland. And then unfortunately this lead would not last as Jarrett Wright gave up four runs on three home runs in the third inning, making it a five to two game with the Orioles uh, winning. And then the Indians chipped away in the fourth on a Marquise Grissom RBI single. And Manny Ramirez looked to chip away even more to decrease the lead. Flexed into deep left center. So Manny Ramirez decreases the lead, makes it five to four. And later in that inning, Sandy Alomar tied it on an RBI single. And with the bases loaded and two outs in the inning, Marquise Grissom was looking to give Cleveland back their lead. Grissom trying to put Cleveland out in front. In the dirt, to the plate, the runner is safe. Justice scores, and now here comes Alomar, two-run score. 
Johnson may be talking to home plate umpire. So just like the Indians drew it up, you get Marquise, you get Marquise Grissom on with runners in scoring position and brings in two runners to give them the seven to five lead, just like they grew, they drew it up. And unfortunately, in the ninth inning, Jose Mesa blew another save. He gave up a one-out single to Rafael Palmero to tie the game. And with two on and two out, Sandy Alomar tried to give the Indians their second consecutive walk-off win to try and give them a 3-1 to one series lead. So the Indians win the game and give themselves a three to one series lead one game, one game away from getting to their second world series in three years. And in game five, Chad Oega uh, cruised through the first two innings, but then gave up a bases loaded two out two run single to Geronimo Barroa. Uh, incredible name, by the way. And the score stayed the same two to nothing until the ninth when the Orioles made it four to nothing on a home run by Eric Davis and a single by Cal Ripken Jr. And although uh, Matt Williams and Tony Fernandez each hit RBI doubles in the ninth, it was not enough. And the Orioles won game five by the score of four to two, closing the series lead to three to two. And then in game six, it was both Mike Messina and Charles Nagy, who were dealing for yet another pitcher's duel. Both of them saw the eighth inning rubber, and it was zero to zero going into, going into extras. Something had to give. And Tony Fernandez was looking to send the Indians into the promised land. Put them on thing. I was about to show the prep sheet. It'd be awkward. One day, one day, I'm just gonna show my like uh, my my all my players that I have planned. It's gonna be terrible. <laughs> See, I have that on my phone, so I'm set. Yeah. On him, that slap bunt walks in. Tony Fernandez, two out, nobody on. That's well hit, in the air to right, track, wall, gone! And the Indians take a 1-0 11th inning lead. Tony Fernandez breaks through here in the 11th.
Vince Dugout treating that home run almost like it's the bottom of the 11th instead of the top of the 11th. It looked like a fastball out over the plate, and he knew it immediately. Clapped his hands two feet out of the box. Gone. So Tony Fernandez puts the Tribe on the board, giving them the lead in extras. And despite blowing the last two saves that he had, Jose Mesa was in the game to finish it to try to send the Indians to the World Series. Strike three called, and the Indians are headed back to the World Series. The Indians are heading to the World Series. Cleveland rocking once again. So we should note the player, the, the players to highlight of this American League Championship Series. Tony Fernandez hits 357 with a 438 on base percentage, 643 slugging, and a 1080 OPS along with one home run. Manny Ramirez hits 286 with a 10.63 OPS. The Indians pitching as a whole in this six-game series had a 2.95 ERA. And normally, uh, we don't highlight stats for the other team. It feels necessary, especially because the guy had some bad luck with his offense. Mike Messina of the Orioles, 0-0 with an 0.60 ERA in 15 innings pitch. I mean, you got to point him out. And... You know, you got to shout out the Indians pitching staff as well for being able to combat that and not allow them to win any games despite allowing only one run in 15 innings pitched in two starts. Pretty wild. That's right. So the Indians are now in the World Series for the second time in three years, like Chris mentioned, and they are playing the expansion Florida Marlins. The Indians drew early blood in game one as David Justice singled off LeVon Hernandez to make it a one nothing game. The Marlins then tied it in the third against Hershiser when Edgar Renteria hit an RBI ground out. And then in the third, Moses Alou and Charles, Charles Johnson hit back-to-back -back home runs to make it a 5-1 to -one game for the Marlins because the Alou home run was a three-run home run. So later on, Jim Tomei stepped up looking to chip away. You know, years ago, Bob, there was a rule... Ball clubs had rules. You had to wear your pants at a certain height, depending on. In the air to left, this ball is well hit. Alou is going back, and it clears the scoreboard for a home run. Alou was trying to decoy him into breaking into a trot on the off chance that it hit the top of the wall and it was still in play, and it did not clear that scoreboard by very much. And there is the first home run for Jim Tomey in the postseason and since mid-September to the opposite field where many of his home runs go. Well, I'm just going to state this now. Uh, I need someone to create a petition for Bob Costas to call the World Series on some sort of alternate broadcast because the he needs to do it. I mean, it's, it's, he's so good at what he does. Um, and I, I would love to see it just for every series. Like, Matt Vaskersian does it. I want Bob Costas doing it as well. Yeah. 
for sure. I, I agree with that. That man is an absolute legend. Like he's been in and around the game. Well, I mean, obviously this is before we were alive, but like, it feels like he's just been there since the start of the game. Like it feels like he was announcing like old house Radborn 60 game season, 60 win season. Yeah. <laughs> and there it is. Number 60. <laughs> From old house Radborn. <laughs> So anyway, the Indians also scored on a Brian Giles double in the ninth, but it wasn't enough. The Marlins won game one, seven to four, and went up one nothing in the series. So in game two, the Indians actually had an identical first inning to the previous night with another David Justice single, making it one to nothing. And it would soon be tied on a Jeff Conine single. So in the fifth inning, the Indians took the lead on a Marquise Grissom single, and two batters later, Bip Roberts looked to do some more damage. And there's some proof. Renneria can't get to it. One run home. Here comes the second. And it's 4-1 to one, Cleveland. Bip Roberts is a 300 hitter. And Vizquel has not had a lot of success over his career against Brown. He's had a couple of hits today, but I still would rather face Vizquel with a runner on base than Bip Roberts. Kevin Brown goes right after him. This is a sinker or the middle of the plate, and he hits it right back through the middle. Brown almost barehanded it, but he decided not to, which was wise. And two-run score. So the Indians tack on, and they have a they have a pretty nicely handled lead, uh, four to one in this game. And then in the sixth inning, Sandy Alomar looked to tack on even more with a runner on first. They couldn't accomplish that on the road in the first two games in 95 at Atlanta. Here's a rocket to left, and this one's not coming back. The fourth home run of this postseason for Sandy Alomar makes it 6-1 Cleveland. Well, if you can tell me you can hit a breaking ball any harder than Alomar just hit that one, You'll never make a believer out of me. Brown with a breaking ball. Joe talked about Brown going more. So the Indians take a 6-1 to lead, and they win by that score to send it back to Cleveland, tied 1-1. to So now in game three, Gary Sheffield hit a quick homer in the first, but the Indians answered scoring two runs in the bottom of the first on RBIs by Matt Williams and Sandy Alomar. Marlins tied it in the third once again with Sheffield, but with a walk this time. The Fish took a lead in the fourth on a home run by Darren Dalton, but the Indians retook the lead on a walk to Vizquel and a two-run single from Manny. So it was a 5-3 Cleveland lead. And in the bottom of the fifth, Jim Tomei looked to extend it. And he does rip it to deep right field and gone. So it is a 7-3 Indians lead, and they are rolling in this one. But the Marlins chipped away in the sixth on a Jim Eisenrich home run to make it 7-5. In the seventh, the Marlins tied the game and RBIs from Renteria and Sheffield. Going into the ninth, it was a 7-7 ball game, and Eric Plunk was on for the Indians, looking to lock it up and 
put the Indians in a position to win it in the ninth. Dalton had a homer earlier tonight. Rifles this one by the diving Fernandez. Bonilla is going to try for third with a sore hamstring. Here's the throw, and it gets by Williams. Goes into the camera well. And Bonilla is waved home. And Dalton will be waved on to third. There was a ball that very nearly was a double play. Had Fernandez been able to catch it on the low liner, Bonilla would have been dead between first and second. Instead, he can't come up with it. And as the play unfolds, a run scores. Quick throw to first, and it gets away, but then it hit the umpire. Now Tommy can't pick it up in time, and Dalton slides home. At first, they caught a break when the ball hit Greg Kosk and bounced back to Tommy. If Tommy had picked it up right away, he had a play on Dalton at the plate, but he couldn't find the handle. Hitting it hard, Fernandez has it bounce away. It's all unraveling for the Indians here in the ninth. Make it 10 to 7. From the Indians' perspective, almost everything that can go wrong in a single inning has gone wrong here. As a 7-7 game turns to 10-7 and now more. Sheffield on the first pitch knocks home two more with a single to right. What a night he has had. He has five RBIs on a single, a double, a solo homer, and even when they walked him, it was with the bases loaded. Actually, he hesitates a little more on that back foot a little bit there. He gave it a little extra. Hit to the whole base hit. It's going to sound like a football score. It's 14 to 7. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Jim Leland's probably saying, and that's enough, guys. Save some of these for tomorrow. Two RBIs on the base knock from Bonilla. So, the, uh, the Marlins score a touchdown in that inning. Like Bob Costa said, 14 to 7. The Indians actually scored four runs in the ninth, but obviously it wasn't enough. The Marlins won this game 14 to 11. So now they're up 2 to 1 in the series. And now we're in game four, where in the bottom of the first, Manny Ramirez came up looking to get the offense going because the Indians needed it. Exactly, styling, but I, I think warmth rather than fashion is here the number one Santa concern Claus. here. Here comes Santa Claus. <laughs> Here's the 1-0. In the air to right, Sheffield going back. Sheffield with a wall. Goodbye. It's the way he sucked that baseball that matters. Now, you know, the Indians, since they went on that little winning streak, all adopted that high style of wearing the pants. This might change the whole club again. So the Sox are back at it. I don't mean the Red Sox or White Sox. I mean the socks that the Indians are wearing, and they're up in game four. The Indians scored again later in the inning on a Sandy Alomar double to make it 3-0, and the game would get even more out of hand in the third on an RBI on RBI singles from Justice, Alomar, and Fernandez to make it 6-0. Later in the eighth, 
with the score being eight to three, Matt Williams looked to put the final dagger in this game. series at two and we got a fall classic on our hands two to two it's a best of three at this point and in game five with the indians trailing two to one in the third sandy alomar hits a three-run home run to put the indians on top four to two however this would be reversed in the sixth as moises alu hit a three-run jack of his own to make it five four florida the Indians went into the ninth, trailing 8-4. to four. They got within one run after RBIs from Justice and Tomey, but they fell short. The Marlins won 8-7, to seven, and now the Indians had their backs to the wall once again. And now we're back in Game 6, back in Miami, and the Indians were desperate for a win, and they would take any offense they can get because they needed it all year, they've had it all year, and they'll take it even if it comes from their pitcher. Chad Oega with the big hit there. The Indians actually got two more runs throughout the game on a Manny Ramirez single and a Manny Ramirez sack fly. Oega drove in more runs than he allowed through five innings. And in the ninth inning, Jose Mesa looked to force a game seven. Kevin Brown, and tonight he did it with his arm, his bat, and even on one occasion with his legs. So this is a series in which the rookie LeVon Hernandez has twice beaten Oral Hershiser, and in which Chad OJ, under 500 for the year, has twice beaten the Marlins ace, Kevin Brown. So my apologies to Chad OJ, not uh, Oega. But anyway, he had a big game. And he forced a game seven. The Indians were playing for their first championship in 49 years. The Marlins were playing for their first title ever. 21-year-old Jarrett Wright, 32-year-old Al Leiter, who actually just turned 32 three days prior to this game. The score remains at zeros through the first two. And in the third, Tony Fernandez stepped up with two on and two out, looking to give the Indians a game seven lead with their first threat of the night here in the third. 
And Fernandez with a liner into center for a base hit. Tommy scores. Grissom is right behind him. It's 2-0 Cleveland. Tony Fernandez, who won the pennant for them with his 11th inning home run at Baltimore in game six of the ALCS, delivers an early hit that could be the decisive hit in the World Series. Could be. If you look at this pitch one more time, this is a fastball right there about belt high, and Fernandez jumps on it and lines it in the center. Lighter upset it himself. The Indians have a 2 0 game seven lead, and on the mound, Jared Wright was dealing. He had the Marlins shut out through six with six strikeouts. Bobby Bonilla led off the seventh, making any attempt he could to change that. Fans settle back in after the seventh inning stretch, and Bobby Bonilla launches one to deep right. Bonilla sends one out of here. Chris, that's what we call a hanger. <laughs> that, that pitch was not supposed to be as high in the zone as it was. Yeah. So it's a 2-1 game. In the ninth, the Indians were threatening with men on the corners with one out. And Marquise Grissom tried to get some needed insurance for Cleveland. And the closer for Jim Leland. Here you see what he's done. Greenings pitch, seven hits, five runs. His control has been a problem for him. I mean, he has no movement on his fastball. He's a very hard thrower. Now the 2-1. A bouncing ball, potential double play. Now Renneria comes to the plate. And Johnson with the tag on Alomar. Well, Renneria had trouble getting it out of his glove again, but he made the right play. In the air to left, Alou has the play. It's a one-run game as we go to the bottom of the ninth in Game 7 of the World Series. So the Indians are now three defensive outs away from a World Series. Jose Mesa is back on for the save. Obviously, he's been, you know, he's been very on and off the postseason, but we, they needed him to be on in this game. He gives up a leadoff single to Moses Alou, but then strikes out Bonilla. So there's one on and one out. After Charles Johnson singled, Alou, Alou went to third. So now Mesa's in a jam, and it would be tricky to get out of it as Craig Council was standing in his way. The 1-1 pitch. A deep drive to right. Ramirez on the run. Makes the catch. Tagging is Alou. Game seven of the World Series is tied. Great job here. 
So now the game is tied. And we go to extra innings in game seven. After Mesa departs in the 10th, Charles Nagy comes out of the bullpen for the Indians. The Indians couldn't get any offense going against Rob Nen and Jay Powell. On to the 11th inning. Nagy started the, the inning by giving up a leadoff single to Bonilla. Greg Zahn was the next hitter, and he would pop up a bunt, which was caught by Nagy. So that's a big break for the Indians. The next batter for Florida was Council. And a sharp ground ball would get the Indians out of, an, out of the inning with a, a double play. to the right side. Fernandez has it go through. Bonilla will try for third. Ramirez up with it, but there's no play on it. Bonilla dives in. Well, Bobby Bonilla tried to shield Tony Fernandez from this ball. Let's see if he does a good job. See, he waits right there, and then he lets it go past him. I'm not so sure if that caused Fernandez to miss it, but that's what Bobby Bonilla was trying to do. And then he hustles on around to third base. And he... So, the Marlins now had the winning run on third with one out. After an intentional walk to Eisenrich, Devon White grounded into a fielder's choice where the winning run was cut down at the plate. Bases loaded, two outs, and Edgar Renteria stepped up the Indians trying to get it to the 12th. Rentoria trying to end the whole thing. One pitch. A liner off Nagy's glove into center field. The Florida Marlins have won the World Series. That's it. The Indians had the best offense in the league. Their pitching struggled throughout the year. And in the end, they get heartbroken in the World Series. Some of the some of the names in the series that performed well. Matt Williams slash 385, 515, 538, 1054 with a home run, three RBIs, and seven walks. Sandy Alomar, a 367, 406, 600, 1006 two home runs and 10 RBIs. Tony Fernandez, you know, you can blame him for the error, but A, he got you there by hitting that home run in the ALCS, and B, during the World Series, he slashed 471, 444, 529, 974, and he was also the, all the offense in that game. Jim Tomey, 286, 397, 571, 965, and also Chad OJ. 2 and 0, a 154 ERA, 11 and 2 thirds innings pitched. So 
you know, with this team, obviously you, it's hard not to look at the heartbreak because it's, you know, it's the one glaring thing. And there's a lot of different things you can blame it on, you know, because allegedly Jose Mesa was uh, calling off basically the pitches that Mike Hargrove was calling, because I guess that was the only time all year that uh, Hargrove was calling the pitches for Mesa. And he kept shaking him off and throwing whatever he wanted, which led to, you know, the base hits, the fly balls that scored the tying run, stuff like that. Uh, you can look at the Indians not getting it done with runners in scoring position uh, in the ninth. You can look at the 14 to 11 game where they, you know, the defense sort of uh, combusted when they needed it most. You can look at a lot of different things, but ultimately uh, the team just didn't get it done. Uh, however, they were extremely resilient and they were lucky to even get to that point. I mean, they were four outs away from getting eliminated by the Yankees. You know, they, they could have lost that game. They also could have lost game five because the Yankees went two for 12 with runners in scoring position. They could have lost the Orioles on several, several different occasions, but you know, the pitchers had some big out, big outings against Mikey Wusina and they could have just lost in game six. Um, so regardless of how it ended, the fact that they got to that point, you know, they had to fight for it. And also this team, they proved that they could win no matter who was on the field. You know, they traded Kenny Lofton. They got rid of Albert Bell. You know, Eddie Murray wasn't on the team. So many staples on that team were not there in 1997, and they still got it done. Uh, they still got as close as they could have ever come. And, you know, the legacy is always going to be the heartbreak, but I think people need to recognize that this team had to fight super, super hard just to get there. Yeah, exactly. And that 1997 team with the with Albert Bell leaving for free agency and um, more guys being let go like Kenny Lofton, they could have easily been the start of sort of a demise of whatever they were, whatever was happening with the Indians in the 90s. But instead, they continued it mightily. And, you know, even even though they only won 86 games in the regular season, it didn't let them. You know, them being an underdog didn't uh, affect them at all um, heading into the postseason. And they took on a giant like the Yankees who were, you know, this was sandwiched in between two World Series for the Yankees, you know, mm -hmm. where the Yankees would also win 114 games the next year. So obviously a very good Yankees team. And, you know, two pitchers were able to outduel Mike Messina in a legendary postseason series for Messina. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, nailed it right there. They were absolutely resilient. So that kind of closes the book on the 1997 Cleveland Indians. Um, obviously, the ending is, is hard, but the fact that they got there was just as much of a fight. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, they were, you know, they were down in, the, in a series twice and came back twice mm -hmm. down in the series against the against the Yankees and down in the series against the Marlins. Uh, and they were down one, nothing against the Orioles. Yeah. They were down one, nothing against the Orioles. So in every series, they came back in their own way. Uh, they faced elimination three times. They won two of those times. Um, you know, it's four times. <laughs> four times. Uh, twice yeah. in the division series, twice in the world series. Uh, oh yeah. Twice in the division series. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were three and one in elimination games, and unfortunately, that one is a big deal, and that's the one that's going to get remembered. The way it happened. What? And especially in the way it happened. Especially in the way it happened, but 
you know, I guess luckily for Fernandez, he didn't blow a lead. Um, and that. He, he gave him the lead. Like yeah. that would have been that would have been one nothing. Like we wouldn't have even been the bottom of the ninth if not for him. It would have been a one nothing Indians lead. Yeah. So you know, it's tough that you know he kind of gets scapegoated, but he was a big he was a big part of that um big part of that team. So does that uh, close the book on the nineteen ninety seven Indians? It does. So that leads us to our favorite part of the show, where we're going to be seeing what our week looks like. We're going to be picking uh, our players and teams for the next week of history. Uh, for those unaware, um, we started doing, uh, we, a- after pretty much it was a guarantee that uh, baseball was not going to be played in, you know, March, April, May for sure. And, you know, eventually June and most of July, we figured, you know, we're not going to have a lot to talk about. We're going to, how about we just pick a player and team to talk about historically, you know, like Steve Carlton, like the 1997 Cleveland Indians. So we decided to pick uh, 30 players, 30 teams, uh, one for each franchise with the teams. Um, And now our list is cut down to uh, 13. Now it's, we still have them numbered one through 15 we randomly assign them numbers through computer randomization and uh, each of us picks the other. So I pick a number to uh, get the team we're gonna be talking about and Daniel picks a number, uh, a random number to pick the player mm-hmm. we are gonna be talking about. So I picked first last week. Yes, I did. Daniel, uh, what player are we gonna be talking about next Wednesday? Or next uh, next Thursday. Player number thirteen. Player number thirteen. Player number thirteen. We uh, you know, we've covered most of the eras uh, of baseball history, but we've kind of yet to tap into it, the era that this guy has played in. We've covered you know guys from the dead ball era, we've covered guys from after the dead ball era, but what about pretty much immediately when the live ball era was starting? Also, this guy's one of the greatest, one of the, regarded as one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time. I think I know who it is. Uh, do you want to take a guess? Is he a middle infielder? No, or he's a corner infielder. Oh, then go ahead. Uh, the player we are going to be talking about next Thursday is Jimmy Fox. Jimmy Fox, one of the best home run hitters there ever was. Yes. He was wow. the second man to get to 500 home runs. I was thinking Rogers Hornsby. Oh yeah, that would have been, been a that been a very good guess. Yeah. So Jimmy Fox. We're going to be talking about him. There's there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack with Jimmy Fox. There is. Yes. A lot to unpack. I'm excited to be talking about him next week. He had week. one of the best like starts to it. Like he started young too, and he got he hit the ground running as soon as. Like yeah. Years, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Very young. Very yeah. young. So now uh, I am going to be picking the team that we are going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, team number one. Team number one. Okay. This team was so good that not even Mother Nature itself 
could stop them. Mother Nature was absolutely shook with how good this team was. We are talking about the 1989 Oakland A's. Oh, our earliest team yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, we get to talk about Ricky Henderson's postseason run again. We do. We get to talk about him. We get to talk about Dennis Eckersley, the Bash Bros, both of them. Uh, we get to talk about Tony Larusa, Bob Welsh. Yeah. Tony Larusa. Um, me, I think so. I think yeah. it was. Wow. Yeah, Tony Larusa. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> earliest team so far that we've done. The 1980s. So we've done two. We okay, hold on. So we're doing an era we haven't done with Jimmy Fox and a decade we haven't done with the 80s. Yeah. Late yeah. 80s. Exactly. Yeah. We we like Mother Nature was really shook at how good this team was. Yeah, we have yet to we've yet to do a player that's played in both the 20s and 30s, which Jimmy mm-hmm. Fox has done, and we've yet to do a team from the 80s. So there we are. Love it. There we go. So we hope you enjoyed our uh, we hope you enjoyed the second part of our uh, history episode our 17th history episode 70th overall episode with the 1977 1997 indians my bad uh and if you want to if you're listening on apple Podcasts or spotify and want want to watch the videos with us subscribe to our youtube channel it is called stvnl with christianta and daniel curran also, follow us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Curran. And follow our show Instagram at STVNL Podcast. And if you, and uh, we hope you enjoyed our Steve Carlton. Uh, and also, we would like to thank uh, Baseball Reference, Stathead, Fangraphs uh for this part of the episode uh and mlb on youtube for this part of the episode uh none of this would be possible without them for sure so we hope you enjoyed our steve carlton 19 and 1997 cleveland indians episode and we hope to be talking to you uh we hope to be seeing you on next tuesday where we're going to be talking about all mlb news and we hope to be talking to you also, on Thursday and Friday, we're going to be talking about Jimmy Fox and the 1989 Oakland Athletics. See you then.